everyone, Josh here. This is the NOYC Godcast, a production of the Northern Ohio Youth Camp. Through various means, including a week of summer camp, youth conferences, sporting events, Christian content, and now a new podcast, the NOYC strives to give Christians a reason to continue on in Christ. We hope you enjoy a very special edition of the NOYC Godcast as we air a segment from our video devotion series, Life's Highway, which premiered back at the NOYC in 2017. For more information regarding the ministry, as well as additional Christian content, please visit our website at www.thenoyc.com. The date was April 9th, 1865. No doubt, for many men, a day they would never forget. Right in the middle of the Civil War, with the country torn apart, that day, a lone Confederate soldier rode on horseback up to the Union's 118th Pennsylvania Infantry urgently waving a white towel as he rode, signifying that he came in peace. No doubt, this was a strange event for both the North and the South. However, the lone horseman was simply asking for directions to the Major General's headquarters. Many of us, if you know anything of American history, have at least read of the famous scene as Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee sit down in a civilized manner to discuss the ending of the Civil War as they negotiate the defeat of the Confederation. However, before Grant and Lee ever sat down, there was a previous request for surrender made. That day, the Confederate soldier, John Gordon, had been sent by General Robert E. Lee of the Confederation to speak with General George Custer of the Union regarding requests of suspension to hostilities in order to allow negotiations of surrender to take place. However, General George Armstrong Custer had a different arrangement in mind. His response to the request of negotiated surrender by Lee was returned with, we will listen to no terms but that of unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. It really is almost an audacious and offensive term, really. In all the battles that have ever been fought throughout history, very few have ever ended in unconditional surrender. The term, by definition, means a surrender in which no guarantees are given to the surrendering party, thus placing pressure upon the weaker party to default into surrender. In other words, Unconditional surrender means that, of the two sides, the weaker side realizes they have no hope of winning, and at the realization that they are the weaker party, they must face surrender. However, because they are the weaker party and have no hope of winning, they must face unconditional surrender to the opposite side. They give up their rights, their demands, their negotiations with the opponent, and all that they get in return is the ending of the battle. Unconditional surrender. It's interesting that just like General Custer in the Civil War, when someone decides to surrender, the victorious side then has the right to accept or deny the condition of the surrender. When Lee and Gordon 
wanted to negotiate the hostilities, General Custer wouldn't have it. He demanded that they would only accept unconditional surrender. Now, I know this may be the opposite of what many of us have heard all of our lives, but did you know that Jesus actually turned people away from himself in the Bible? Most of us have heard a preacher who meant well plead in an altar call that he will turn no one away, and that technically that's partly true. But just like General Custer, Jesus is the victorious party, and it's up to him if he will accept your conditions, and Jesus clearly only accepts unconditional surrender of his followers. The scene unfolds in Luke chapter 9. Jesus had set his path towards Jerusalem, and as was so often in Jesus' ministry, large crowds would follow him and come to seek him. And on this particular day, several people approach Jesus, and in so many terms, he offers their conditions. And in verse 57 it says, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. The man was on a good start. He offers to follow Jesus anywhere, as was often Jesus' request to would-be followers. But listen to Jesus' reply in verse 58. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee. But let me first go bid them farewell, which are at my home, at my household. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having but put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. These verses are uncomfortable, and almost seem rude of the Jesus we have been told about. But the truth is, he was willing to accept any of these folks as his followers, if they were willing to surrender unconditionally. One by one, they all gave their demands to Jesus, and Jesus rejected them. It's interesting. The last verse in chapter 9, Jesus references a plow. My guess is there are like less than half of you that know what a plow is, and even less than 10 of you in this entire room who have ever used a plow before. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't require us to become farmers in order to be a follower. This random phrasing Jesus uses here is in reference to the Old Testament, and it's a pretty great story. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we find the prophet Elijah seeking out followers for the ministry of God, and he comes up on Elisha plowing in the field. And it says, So he departed thence, and found Elisha, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And Elijah passed by him, and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen, and ran after Elijah, and said, Let me, I pray thee, Kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned 
back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. I realize it's a strange story for a lot of us today, but what we have to understand is the significance of what Elisha does here and how Jesus relays it once again in the New Testament. After Elijah calls Elisha to follow him, Elisha goes back home and he doesn't tuck away the plow in the barn, he doesn't tie up the oxen to the fence. Elisha, in an audacious and faith-filled move, kills the oxen he has just been plowing with. He lights the plow he just had in his hands on fire and cooks the oxen over the fire. Then he feeds it to the people. This story is definitely not PETA approved, but for sure it is God approved. The plow and the oxen were literally Elisha's livelihood. They were his career, his income, his security. Farming was how Elisha made a living for himself and his family. And in the days of Elisha, neither would have been easy to come by. It's not like he could have eaten his oxen and just replaced them the next day at the market. A yoke of oxen would have been purchased after years of hard labor and saving. The Bible doesn't say this, but I can just imagine the look on Elisha's mom and dad's faces as he comes back home, kisses them on the cheek, and then invites them to the barbecue in the backyard. As they exit the back porch and see all their neighbors eating this delicious smelling food, dad asks, what you cooking? To which Elisha replies, oh, just the oxen from the field. I won't be needing them anymore. The reason this story is so impressive, and the reason Jesus feels it's worth bringing up again, is because of the faith it took from Elisha to get rid of the backup plan. Elisha unconditionally surrendered to the call, and he literally got rid of any options of returning to his old life. Not knowing how things would work out, what the outcome would be, plan A was following Elijah and plan B had just been roasted and served to the neighbors. Remember what Jesus told those who wanted to follow him? No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. If you want to be a Christian, great! Jesus says you only qualify if you lay down all of your conditions, all of the things you hold to, and never look back. All eyes on him from now until eternity. Have you ever heard of the term war chest? It's sort of an odd phrase that has lost its meaning after the modernization of military forces that we know today. However, the term war chest comes from way back in the medieval times, a time when the world was arranged by kingdoms, royalties, and castles. It was not unusual in the medieval times for battles to break out between two kingdoms to see who was superior and in an attempt to overtake or overthrow one another. And so, many kingdoms and kings would have hidden away a war chest. This chest was a literal box that held the remnants of weaponry, finances, and battle gear from the previous battles. A king would maintain his war chest just in case 
the desire, need, or opportunity to return to battle may ever approach. So understand the scenario. A king and his kingdom are suddenly attacked in an attempt to be overthrown. The battle is fierce. The war is long. The battle finally ends. The invaded king is defeated. And the terms of surrender are given. The king admits defeat. And the invading kingdom has received victory. However, even after the battle, after the war has been fought, after he has been defeated, he still keeps the war chest. The king holds on to his military might, the weaponry, the arsenal, just in case he ever decides to rebel, to rise up once again against him who was superior. Can I let you in on a little secret? I have a war chest too. In fact, if you're a Christian living in 2018, chances are you have one too. Now it may not be an arsenal-packed chest of weapons hidden under your bed. That would be awkward. But we do hold back and hide away the things we keep from God. Jesus over and over gave the call for anyone who would listen to leave everything behind and to follow him. Often, he would give the example of leaving family, leaving house, leaving career, forsaking all, and trading it in for him. And in modern day Christianity, we know that the Bible still says this, yet we don't really like it. And so most Christians have adopted this belief that Jesus was being metaphorical. And so, in a compromise and an attempt to make everyone happy, we decide to follow Jesus. But after bowing at the altar, making that confession to be a Christian, we tuck away this trunk full of our unsurrendered, off-limit items that Jesus need not to worry about. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Maybe, like a lot of people in this room, you store your sin in your war chest. We know that followers of Jesus technically don't lie, they shouldn't cheat or swear. Jesus' followers don't gossip or look at filth or whatever that pet sin of yours may be. If you were to be completely honest, you know it's wrong. God certainly knows it's wrong. And as a Christian, you are all too aware you have no business doing it. Yet there it is, tucked inside your war chest, hidden under the bed so that you can pull it out anytime you want when you're having a really bad day or when everything falls apart. Maybe when you get around a certain friend or a certain crowd, when you're at school or the workplace, and the opportunity arises, you casually open the war chest, pull out that weapon of rebellion you had stashed away, and use it, knowing good and well you should not. Truth is, that wasn't part of the deal. Your salvation wasn't conditional surrendering, except for that. No, Jesus had in mind unconditional surrender, holding nothing back, including that pet sin in the war chest. Maybe you're stocking your success in your war chest. Following Jesus is great, but when things are going well, when your career is thriving, your achievements are mounting, it would be a shame for them to be hidden in a dusty trunk somewhere. And so, you pull out the war chest, just as a fact check, 
You need Jesus just as much as when things are going well as when things are going badly. If you're following Jesus as a backup plan, as a help me out card for when things are getting tough, you are just using him. And he won't have that. It's funny how far we have come as Christians. Most of us think we are doing a pretty good job managing our lives. In fact, we are pretty proud of the lives we have made for ourselves. And we would never ever say it out loud. But even if we didn't have Jesus to help us out, we think we could make it pretty well without him. But do we realize that Jesus himself told his followers to count on him to supply all of their needs? Jesus said, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Newsflash! We need Jesus for everything in life. He tells us our job is to seek Him and His righteousness, and He will supply all that we ever need. How far we have come by propping our lives up with what we think we can accomplish, stocking our successes in our war chest, and only keeping Jesus around for emergencies. When Jesus called you to follow Him, He clearly told you the only terms on which He would take you is unconditional surrender, even of your stock successes. What about saving your security? To be honest, nearly every Christian has this little gem tucked away in their secret arsenal hiding in their war chest. Following Jesus is great as a plan A. Most of us would proudly proclaim that he is our number one in life. We smile and raise our hands and we say we are all about Jesus. But ironically, we keep this plan B really, really close, just in case. What we don't always realize is just how much it devalues him as our plan A in life, as our number one, when we have a close second as a backup in case things go south. Our security is not really in Jesus when we have a backup plan. Jesus calls us to him in full surrender, unconditionally, leaving it all behind. Plans A, B, and C, he tells us to burn the plow, eat the oxen, and have a barbecue with our backup plans footing the bill. When the possession, or the person, or the finances in our life is tucked into our war chest, ready and available in case we decide we don't need Jesus, just in case things don't turn out the way we had hoped, in case he lets us down. When we keep our second most important thing in life readily available, it will, even if it's unintentional, take over. The thing about Jesus is he is both jealous and a gentleman. He wants nothing else before him. Because he is jealous, he wants to be number one. But he is also a gentleman. If he knows he has to compete with something or someone else for your heart, he will step aside and allow it. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It means he will give in to your will. Matthew 6.24 says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon 
means everything that is opposed or anything that is not God. Now, because you kept it around, hidden in the trunk, you have inadvertently replaced Jesus. You have stopped loving him fully and replaced part of your love for him with a love for something besides him. How often we hear Christians proudly say that Jesus is number one and that family or career or sports or hobbies are ordered second and third down the line. But as long as Jesus is first, that's all that matters. The problem is, just like Elisha, if he were to have kept that plow and those oxen, even as a second, surely he had still left everything behind to follow, but the option was still open. The opportunity to come back was still available. So instead, Elisha decided to destroy plan B, completely get rid of the possibility. I think a lot of us think that as long as it is categorized as a close second to Jesus, he doesn't mind. Jesus says, this is what it takes to be his follower. Make him plan A and don't have plans B through Z. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, Jesus says. And if your treasure completely and wholeheartedly on anything but him are not surrendered. What about our sashing secrets? Be honest. There are some things in your life you really just don't want the world to know. Maybe it's a mistake you've made, a faltering failure, a destructive decision, something that you just know if your friends, your family knew about you, they would judge you. They would reject you. They would ridicule you. Secrets that you have tried so hard to hold on to, to keep under lock and key, that it now holds you hostage through the fear of being found out. But Jesus himself is the one who said, Nothing is secret that shall not be made manifest, neither anything hid that shall not be known and come abroad. When we stash secrets, God is unable to fully use us openly without a part of us being held back, stashed in our secret war chest. He wants us to follow him fully, giving all of ourselves. But when we hold back even the smallest part and keep it in our war chest, we aren't fully surrendered. He says, surrender your secrets, get them out in the open, and unconditionally follow me. We could go on and on listing the items that you keep hidden away in your war chest. But the truth is, the bigger problem is with the war chest itself. You see, the reason for keeping the war chest around is not really complicated. In fact, it's pretty simple. We keep our war chest because we believe Jesus is not a satisfying savior. Now we would never ever say this, in fact, we would blatantly deny it, but for what other reason would anyone keep a trunk of collectibles that you can access anytime you want if the need or urge or desire arises to turn back? Just as the king in medieval days would keep his war chest in case he ever decided to rise in rebellion again, we keep our war chest as an option that we can always come back to. Jesus is the invading king. He tells us that he has come to make all things new, to make us new creations. He has come to overthrow our sin-natured kingdoms that is our life in sin. 
He is so much stronger and superior, we are no match to the might of his kingdom. And so we realize that we must give in. We must surrender to him. But when we do, Jesus says, he will only accept unconditional surrender. Give it all to me, including your war chest. Because if you keep even the smallest part of your old life, the smallest part of your past, the smallest part of could have been, you will choose the option of turning back to our war chest. However, the life of the Christian is the life of realizing that truly, absolutely, and completely, Jesus is all you need, and Jesus is all you want. Anything aside from a life completely given to him is a life of surrendering on your terms. And Jesus says, you are unfit for the kingdom of heaven. Mark 12, 30, Jesus himself says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. He would go on to tell the rich young ruler to give up everything which he held on to in exchange for Jesus. Knowing that Jesus could fully satisfy the void left by anything given up for him. We know the rich ruler goes away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to give up his riches to follow Jesus. Do you know what those riches were tucked away in? His war chest. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't want to relinquish his riches in order to do so. Because he thought Jesus wasn't enough to fill the void left by his riches. And so, he goes away regretful as a person who did not follow Jesus. Can I tell you? Jesus is always enough. If you give up your friends and family to follow Jesus, he will be your closest friend and give you a new family. If you leave behind riches of this earth, he will give you joy that money can't buy and keys to a mansion in the sky. If you surrender your sin to him, Jesus will exchange your sin for robes of righteousness that he himself bought. Whatever you lose through unconditional surrender, Jesus is more than enough. Do you know what Jesus said to Peter one time when Peter asked about leaving everything and following him? Jesus replied, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake. Who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting? It's Jesus or bust. For the Christian, there is no life aside from the unconditionally surrendered life. Don't just give it to Jesus, give it all to Jesus. For in heaven, anyone who gave all will receive much more in this present time and in life everlasting. William Borden had everything going for him in life. The heir of a very wealthy family, the decorated graduate of Yale, and at the healthy age of 25. Borden had his whole life and unlimited possibilities laying ahead of him. So easily William could have pursued wealth or career possibly fame or further education, but instead, William Borden surrendered completely to following Jesus, wherever he may lead. Borden was called as a missionary to Muslims in China, 
And so in pursuit of this calling, he left his comforts, his security, his reputation, and his family behind, and traveled to Egypt to learn Arabic in preparation for his mission work with Muslims. However, once in Egypt, William contracts spinal meningitis. Before even reaching the mission field, he would pass away. Gordon left his family fortune to mission groups and Christian ministries, leaving nothing behind to hold on to. At the end of his very young life, the only thing left to his name was the very small cemetery plot in Cairo, Egypt, to which he was laid to rest. This small gravesite is hidden away in a poorly taken care of cemetery, neglected and forgotten. But on the gravestone, in front of the body of William Borden, which was unfortunately placed directly in front of his script, facing a wall, making it inaccessible or visible, you will find the words, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Even more peculiar are the words which Borden left behind, written on his personal Bible. Borden, after having surrendered everything he had in life to Jesus, holding nothing back in life or death, wrote the words, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. When did following Jesus become conditional? Again, we encourage you to head over to our website or the description of this video. We do have a link there with some memorable moments from the NOIC. Also encourage you to share today's podcast so that others can be encouraged and invigorated as well. And so thanks so much for joining us today. Until next time, continue on in Christ.